1: Good evening, children of the night. Welcome. Welcome to the nook. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Welcome to... Yes, yes, the streets. They're full. Full of strange blue people tonight. Come in, come in, come in. Unwrap yourselves. Grab a drink. It is blue and crazy out there. It is that season, yes. Baseball season. And the Chicago Cubs, who live just a few hundred yards north of here... Well, look, let me finish the welcome. Uh, Yes, I'm Lauren Santoro, your host for these weekly gatherings here in the flickering darkness. So, get comfortable, grab a chum, have something warm to sip, something pleasant to nibble, and settle in. Now, it is already baseball crazy out in the streets— I apologize for that, but for the next six months—another reason why I do not like spring and summer and the leading edge of fall—we will have hordes of marauding suburbanites and packs of vicious frat boys, and given time and a degree the middle-management zombies into which the frat boys inevitably morph, on the move and in our hood. The aforementioned wandering, marauding, morphing mob will snarl and snap at passers-by. At one another they will dice the death by shuffling in the streets among the cars, the cabs, the buses, and camera crews. They will litter, puke, and micturate on the stoop you have just stood upon to ring the bell and await my welcome here to the nook then. Then they will evaporate, go home to the places without pavements that surround the city, and they will shake their necklace heads and complain bitterly about the dirt and the unfriendliness of Chicago. And tonight, dear children of the night, tonight there wasn't even a home game. Just fans making a trial run, packing the dozens of yawning baseball brothels here on Clark Street, waiting... Waiting, drinking and waiting, and howling, yes. Next Friday, though, next Friday. No rehearsal. There will be a home game. It's an afternoon stand, so the bob will be well-oiled by your arrival time. Be prepared. The creatures of summer will wander the streets, long after Wrigley's lights have gone out following... Whatever degree of loss the Cubs will have experienced that day, and the gates will be chained and locked until the next day, when the team again shuffles onto the field, armed with bats of ash and leather-clad throwing objects in their paws. And so it goes all season. Now, well, it is spring the image I've posted on the home site, it's from a story in Bill Gaines wonderful Haunt of Fear Comics, Haunt of Fear number nineteen, in fact. Gaines EC comics were probably my favorite funny books, as my grandfather called them. The story shown is by Jack Davis and Al Feldstein, and is called Foul Play. <laughs> Foul Play was one of the stories that drove Dr. Frederick Wortham into an anti-comic froth way back then. It even came to the attention of the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency, which starred coonskin hat-wearing Senator Estes Kefauver of Tennessee. Well, Wortham got a book out of his professional snit, and that book, The Seduction of the Innocents, ruined comic books for everyone. And, of course, Kefauver gained national attention and a nod for the vice presidency when Adlai Stevenson fronted the Democratic ticket against Dwight D. Eisenhower and Richard Nixon. So, you see, baseball. No good for you. Enough of that. You'll soon think there's a theme to this evening's gathering. There isn't. But our first tale of the night is a sweet little effort from Mr. David D. Levine, and it ties not to baseball, but to comic book lore, about which I offer the disclaimer I am no expert and know only the barest of essentials. But first things first— I met David Levine at the recent World Fantasy Convention in Toronto. He was part of a panel that kicked off editor John Joseph Adams' anthology, The Mad Scientist's Guide to World Domination, a collection which I recommend heartily, by the way. Normally, when I go to conventions, I attend very few panels, but the title snagged me. And at this overflowing gathering, David read the story he is about to read for you here Immediately after, I zipped over to him and asked if we could have it for Tales to Terrify. I'll tell you more later, but just to remind you, it is through Mr. Adams' generosity that we had Laird Baron's monumental Frontier Death Song last year. And it is through his and David's generosity that tonight we feature the following tale from The Mad Scientist's Guide to World Domination. Here is David's... Letter to the editor.
2: Once I was an astrophysicist. Once I struggled only with bulky equipment, recalcitrant equations, obstinate administrators. Once I was well on the way to uncovering the secrets of the universe. But then... He arrived, the caped and costumed alien who has occupied my days and dogged my dreams for my entire adult life. You know him as Ultimate Man, or the Emerald Avenger, or the Champion of Humanity. You know me, if you think of me at all, only in relation to him, Dr. Talon, Ultimate Man's constant foe and implacable adversary. Or perhaps to you I am Dr. Talon, mad scientist! or Dr. Talon, criminal genius. But though I do not deny that some components of my actions have been against the law, I know that history will eventually exonerate me. Everything I have done, you see, I have done to save the world. In real life, the most important moments in science are not greeted by the exclamation, Eureka! but by a puzzled frown and the words, That's funny. So it was with me. I soon tracked the anomalous energy signature that had spoiled my radio observations of the Eagle Nebula to a humble dairy farm in Wisconsin, and then to a single point source, a point source that moved and grew and behaved in a most unusual way. Intrigued, I studied the phenomenon as it developed. Despite its humanoid appearance, I soon ascertained that it was, in fact, an extraterrestrial energy matrix with a human shape, not even alive in the conventional sense, more like a standing wave of solar energy. By the time the media finally managed to notice a flying man in a gaudy green and gold costume zipping hither and yon over the city over twenty years later— I had already verified, identified, and analyzed this extraterrestrial and determined that he was a threat. The rest of my career, of my life, has been devoted to this threat's amelioration. My personal relationship with Ultimate Man began with the famous incident in which my right hand was severed above the wrist— I won't go into details about this unfortunate episode, except to say that the primary reason it is significant to me is not simply the physical pain it caused me, nor is it the psychological pain resulting from the cruel nickname with which I have been saddled by the media based upon the appearance of the eminently practical prosthesis I designed to replace my missing appendage. Rather, it was the data that I gathered about Ultimate Man during the incident, which proved beyond question that my hypothesis about him was in fact correct. It was shortly after the completion of my analysis of this data that I began performing the series of actions which have been described with wearisome hyperbole as a criminal career without precedent in history, but which, as I said above, were necessary in order to save the world. I know that you will not believe this assertion, choosing instead to accept the conventional narrative that I have done what I have done because of an irrational personal hatred for the alien being known as Ultimate Man, who is, by the way, an illegal immigrant. He arrived here without papers and resides in this country under a false identity. But... As any thoughtful consumer of today's media knows, it is the frame in which the facts are considered, rather than the facts themselves, that determines their emotional content and the impression the viewer carries away. Rather than, mad genius threatens crowd with heat ray, for example, what would you think if you read the headline, philanthropic inventor staves off global destruction? Hmm? You may scoff, but I can prove my position is well-founded. Let me begin by pointing out something that you might even have noticed yourself. Ultimate Man's power is growing. Over the years, he has gone from leaping tall buildings in a single bound to alt flight, from traveling faster than a speeding bullet to exceeding the speed of light, from being so tough that nothing less than a bursting bomb could penetrate his skin to withstanding the force of an atomic blast or the interior of the sun. Additional unrelated powers have also appeared with time, some of them quite ludicrous. If you had been paying attention, you would have noticed that these increases in his power were most significant in the first few decades of his career, and have leveled off since then. And if you had been paying attention, and were as intelligent as I, you would have realized that this was a very, very fortunate turn of events. Why? Consider for a moment the energy required to accelerate the body the size of a human being to the transonic velocities ultimate man has been observed to attain. "'Consider the energy required to raise the locomotives, steamships, and even entire buildings he has been observed to lift. "'The energy required to crush coal into diamonds, perform detailed X-ray analysis on the contents of a person's pockets at a distance, or melt steel with a glance?' If you are incapable of performing the math, I hope that you will believe me when I tell you that the energy Ultimate Man expends in a single typical day is far in excess of the annual electrical production capacity of the entire United States. Now, consider what would occur if the energy level implied by those feats exceeded this phase-space limit of an extraterrestrial humanoid standing wave. I recognize that this last calculation depends on some unverifiable assumptions about the specific parameters of Ultimate Man's alien waveform. But my observations and my calculations have demonstrated beyond the possibility of contradiction that such a limit must exist, and furthermore that it must be well below the energy level which would have been attained by now if his power had continued to increase at the pace of his earliest years. And if that limit should ever be exceeded, even momentarily, the energy would be released in a single burst." The exact impact of such an energy release depends on its position and circumstances, but its magnitude is greater than anything seen on this planet since the formation of the solar system. If it should occur, for example, over land at an altitude of, say, 10 kilometers, the energy is certainly sufficient to crack the Earth's crust, blow half its atmosphere into space, shift its orbit, and render the planet incapable of supporting any form of life more complex than a paramecium. So why, you might ask yourself again, if you had been paying attention, did Ultimate Man's increase in powers level off? Could it, perhaps, have been a consequence of the energy he was expending while battling the nefarious schemes of a certain master criminal? Could those schemes, perhaps, have been carefully designed to absorb as much of his energy as possible without killing him? Yes, I have carefully avoided killing or permanently disabling my adversary. I'm not blind or stupid, His accomplishments during natural disasters alone, never mind the many times he has defended the Earth from extraterrestrial enemies, demonstrate to even the least perceptive observer that he must be allowed to continue in action, despite the long-term threat he would pose if not controlled. At this point, you are no doubt rolling your eyes, if indeed you are still listening at all, at my naivete for believing that anyone would believe the assertion of a known evil genius that the champion of humanity is actually its greatest threat. Isn't it more likely, you may ask, that this is part of some nefarious scheme? If this threat had any basis in reality, wouldn't I have gone public long ago to clear my name and gain allies in my long battle to keep Ultimate Man's power under control? The two questions answer each other. I have been unable to come forward before now, because no one would have believed me. It all comes back to framing. When Ultimate Man himself believes I harbor an intense personal hatred for him, and the major media outlets are predominantly staffed by personal friends of his, any communication on my part is interpreted in terms of that frame, and is interpreted as a ruse, a hoax, or just an attempt to grab attention. The same frame has prevented my theories from being accepted by the scientific establishment. I must assign some of the blame to myself. In the early years, uncertain of the validity of my hypothesis, and, yes, I must confess, still somewhat peeved about that early incident that deprived me of my hand, I worked tentatively, in secret, and in a way that could easily have been misinterpreted as intending deliberate harm to ultimate man and innocent bystanders. By the time I had confirmed my hypothesis and was prepared to announce it to the world, I had already been branded a mad scientist. Which brings us to this current communication. Why, you may ask, do I think this letter to the editor will be taken seriously when my previous phone calls, broadsheets, and loudspeaker announcements from hovering dirigibles have been dismissed as the ravings of a brilliant but deranged madman? Evidence. Incontrovertible and unbiased evidence. At the same time this recording was released to the press, all of the data, analysis, and conclusions I have gathered on the alien known as Ultimate Man were published on the World Wide Web. You can see it right now at the URL at the end of this recording, as well as several redundant locations which can be located with a simple Google search. It includes all of the raw data, all of my steps in the development of my theory, complete with every blind alley, misstep, and error, and details of every action I have taken to test the theory and put it into practice. It is my hope that by sharing all this information, some of it, embarrassing or incriminating, I will make it as clear to you as it has been to me for decades that Ultimate Man must be continuously monitored and controlled with frequent and serious challenges to his ever-increasing powers to keep them in check, or humanity is doomed. My files also include pointers to physical evidence, including the exact locations of my various secret laboratories, where you will find specialized instruments and devices which I have used to both monitor and challenge Ultimate Man. I recognize that many people, including Ultimate Man himself and many of my criminal associates, will immediately attempt to take exclusive control of these devices. However, by making their locations and the data behind their creation simultaneously available to the public, I expect that any advantage gained by such control will be short-lived. But why am I releasing this information now, after so many decades of secrecy? The answer is that my circumstances have changed. "'My occupation, this career that has been thrust upon me by circumstance, is by no means easy, or safe. "'Even though Ultimate Man, for all that he endangers the planet by his very existence, would never voluntarily hurt me, "'the same cannot be said for the less sophisticated members of the law enforcement community, "'nor for my criminal rivals, nor for the unplanned side effects of my own actions.' Though I have so far evaded every bomb, missile, and collapsing secret laboratory sent my way, it seems that I have failed to dodge one bullet, one too small to be seen. It turns out that long-term exposure to certain extraterrestrial radioactive materials was not as harmless to Earth life as I had thought. To be blunt, I am afflicted with aggressive late-stage leukemia. As I record this, I will be dead within six months. If you are hearing it, I am dead already. And with my death, the release of my theories and the supporting data becomes not only possible, but necessary. Naturally, you will suspect a hoax. Please do visit the URL at the end of this recording and check out the resources there for yourself, which include several different third-party verifications of my demise. If you are hearing this, you can be certain that my passing has been noted, confirmed, and verified by numerous automated systems and trusted colleagues, and that I am truly and irretrievably dead. And even though, in my line of work, death is not always permanent, at the very least it seems to require some time to recover. And in that time, ultimate man's power could grow to planet-shattering levels. Therefore, now that I am... Gone, I ask that you, yes, you, the person hearing this letter on the internet or reading it in any of over six hundred daily newspapers around the world, take up my tools and my cause. Challenge ultimate man. Dissipate his power. Prevent global disaster. I know that most of my listeners will not heed this request. Your daily life is already too full. You feel you lack the necessary expertise. You wish to avoid the consequences of such action. Having faced those consequences myself, I cannot impugn your reluctance. But some small percentage of those who hear this will feel called to action and will take up the challenge. Perhaps, if you are still listening, you are one of these. My life since Ultimate Man's arrival has been a hard and lonely one, but you with the head start provided by my files and devices, will have an easier time of it than I did. And you will have colleagues around the world, others like yourself who have heeded my call, working together on difficult challenges with dramatic and immediate real-world impact. I cannot imagine anything more exciting or satisfying. It is, in effect, the biggest and most important open-source project in history. I, I have been labeled a mad scientist, I rebelled against this label at first, then eventually learned to wear it with pride. Now I pass it along to you to share with your peers. You are the mad scientist now. Go forth and save the world! For more information, please see tinyurl.com slash drtalon. That's tinyurl.com slash d-r-t-a-l-o-n.
1: David D. Levine considers himself a science fiction and fantasy writer. No arguments there. He's had over 50 stories in places such as Asimov's Analog, the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, Realms of Fantasy. He's won the Hugo Award for Best Short Story, The Endeavor Award, the Writers of the Future Contest, the James White Award, People's Choice Award for Best Drabblecast Story of the Year, and the Phobos Fiction Contest. He has been shortlisted or nominated for the Nebula Award, the Theodore Sturgeon Award, the A.N. Award, the Jim Bean Memorial Writing Contest for an earlier Hugo, and he was nominated twice for the John W. Campbell Award. He's had stories in four years' best volumes and has been translated into, deep breath here, French, Czech, Hebrew, Swedish, Romanian, Finnish, Italian, Polish, Spanish, Russian, and Chinese. David has also spread the wealth as an instructor at the Alpha Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Workshop for Young Writers, the Cascade Writers' Workshop, Rainforest Writers' Village, and for many other writers' workshops. He's a member of the Wild Cards Consortium, the Book View Cafe, and the Science Fiction Writers of America, for whom he coordinates the SFWA Northwest Reading Series. David lives in Portland, Oregon, with his wife, Kate Ewell, with whom he co-edits the fanzine Bento, and he can be found at David D. Levine dot com, that's d a v i d d l e v i n e dot com, and at various other places in the webverse. Doctor Talon himself read tonight's offering. His efforts and monumental failures are too numerous to be listed here, and as he is now deceased, there is no virtue to be gained by pointing you to his secret website which she has already given you at the end of his letter. I, I will, of course, post it on the Tales to Terrify homepage. So thank you again, David. And thank you again, John. I hope you'll take a look at John Joseph Adams' most recent and ongoing effort, by the way, Nightmare Magazine. It seems like a great idea and is grand in execution, so I hope, too, that you'll look for the Mad Scientist's Guide to World Domination, Original Short Fiction, for the Modern Evil Genius, to give it its full title. Now, before I go any farther with the evening's entertainments, let me jump up and down, figuratively, of course, and hoot out my most sincere hoots, to herald a fourth Hugo nomination for our mothership, the good ship Starship Sofa. It is well-deserved. Tony C. Smith and all, four nominations and a Hugo win. Wow! And now, in the wake of that announcement, a brief word about money. The District of Wonders needs some. We are and shall, to the best of my knowledge, remain free to subscribers and casual listeners around the world. Think of it. Four shows, four spiffy genres to dip into or to fully wallow in each week. Choices galore. Science fiction, adventure, fantasy, mystery, horror. Four, five, six hours of it each week. Well, it's free to you, but that doesn't make it cost-free. Or even cheap to produce and spread to all corners of the globe. So we need your contributions. Strictly voluntary, of course. But I will say, without a serious infusion of cash... Uh,
3: well...
0: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
3: Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t-shirt.
0: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com.
4: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers.
1: Go, click, contribute. Go to talestoterrify.com and give. All right, Three little words follow: No, not by the book. though that's not a bad idea. These three words are Joe R. Lansdale. Joe made a significant contribution to the early hours of this podcast when he allowed us to record and post his God of the Razor. That was show number two. The New York Times has called him a fresh discovery decades in the making. Joe Lansdale is a writer of any damn thing he wants, because every damn thing he does, he does extraordinarily well. He's also a martial arts expert, by the way. There'll be more about him later, but now, here is Joe R. Lansdale's Fish Night.
3: It was a bleached bone afternoon with a cloudless sky and a monstrous sun. The air trembled like a mass of gelatinous ectoplasm. No wind blew. Through the swelter came a worn black Plymouth, coughing and belching white smoke from beneath its hood. It wheezed twice, backfired loudly, died by the side of the road. The driver got out and went around to the hood. He was a man in the hard winter years of life, with dead brown hair, and a heavy belly riding his hips. His shirt was open to the navel. The sleeves rolled up past his elbows. The hair on his chest and arms was gray. A younger man climbed out on the passenger side, went around the front too. Yellow sweat explosions stained the pits of his white shirt. An unfastened striped white tie was draped over his neck like a pet snake that had died in its sleep. Well, the younger man said, The old man said nothing. He opened the hood. A calliope note of steam blew out from the radiator in a white puff, rose to the sky, turned clear. Damn, said the old man, and he kicked the bumper of the Plymouth as if he were kicking a foe in the teeth. He got little satisfaction out of the action, just a nasty scuff on his brown wingtip and a jar to his ankle that hurt like hell. Well, the young man repeated, Well, what? What do you think? Dead as the can opener trade this week. Deadder. The radiator's chicken-pocked with holes. Maybe someone will come by and give us a hand. Sure. A ride, anyway. Keep thinking that, college boy. Someone is bound to come along, the young man said. Maybe. Maybe not. Who else takes these cutoffs? Main highway, that's where everyone is. Not this little no-count shortcut. He finished by glaring at the young man. "'I didn't make you take it,' the young man snapped. "'It was on the map. I told you about it, that's all. You chose it. You were the one that decided to take it. It's not my fault. Besides, who'd have expected the car to die?' "'I did tell you to check the water in the radiator, didn't I? Wasn't that back as far as El Paso?' "'I checked. It had water, then. I tell you, it's not my fault. You're the one that's done all the Arizona driving.' Yeah, yeah, the old man said, as if this were something he didn't want to hear. He turned to look up the highway. No cars, no trucks, just heat waves and miles of empty concrete in sight. They seated themselves on the hot ground with their backs to the car. That way it provided some shade, but not much. They sipped on a jug of lukewarm water from the Plymouth and spoke little until the sun fell down. By then... They'd both mellowed a bit. The heat had vacated the sands, and the desert chill had settled in. Where the warmth had made the pair snappy, the cold drew them together. The old man buttoned his shirt, rolled down his sleeves, while the young man rummaged a sweater out of the back seat. He put the sweater on, sat back down. I'm sorry about this, he said suddenly. Wasn't your fault. Wasn't anyone's fault. I just got to yelling sometime, taking out the can opener trade on everything but the can openers and myself. The days of door-to-door salesmen are gone, son. And I thought I was going to have an easy summer job, the young man said. The old man laughed. (laughs) Bet you did. They talk a good line, don't they? I'll say. Make it sound like found money. There ain't no found money, boy. Ain't nothing simple in this world. Company's the only one ever makes any money. We just get tireder and older with more holes in our shoes. If I had any sense, I'd quit years ago. All you got to make is this summer. Maybe not that long. Well, this is all I know. Just town after town, motel after motel, house after house. Looking at people through screen wire while they shake their heads no. Even the cockroaches at the sleazy motels begin to look a little like fellas you seen before. Like maybe they're door-to-door peddlers and have to rent rooms, too, the young man chuckled. <laughs> you might have something there. They sat quietly for a moment, welded in silence. Night had a full grip on the desert now. A mammoth gold moon billions of stars cast a whitish glow from eons away. The wind picked up. The sand shifted, found new places to lie down. The undulations of it, slow and easy, were reminiscent of the Midnight Sea. The young man, who had crossed the Atlantic by ship once, said as much. "'See?' the old man replied. "'Yes, yes, exactly like that. I was thinking the same. That's part of the reason it bothers me. Part of why I was stirred up this afternoon. It wasn't just the heat doing it. There are memories of mine out here,' he nodded at the desert. "'And they're visiting me again.' The young man made a face. I don't understand. You wouldn't. You shouldn't. You'd think I was crazy. I already think you're crazy, so tell me. The old man smiled. All right, but don't you laugh. I won't. A moment of silence moved in between them. Finally, the old man said, it's a fish night, boy. Tonight's full moon and This is the right part of the desert, if memory serves me, and the feel is right. I mean, doesn't the night feel like it's made up of some fabric, that it's different from other nights, that it's like being inside a big, dark bag, sides sprinkled with glitter, a spotlight at the top, at the open mouth to serve as a moon? You lost me, the old man sighed, but it feels different, right? You can feel it too, can't you? I suppose. I sort of thought it was just the desert air. I've never camped out in the desert before, and I guess it is different. Different, all right. You see, this is road I got stranded on 20 years back. I didn't know it at first, at least not consciously, but down deep in my gut I must have known all along I was taking this road, tempting fate, offering it, as the football people say, an instant replay I still don't understand about fish night. What do you mean? You were here before? Not exactly this spot somewhere along in here. This was even less of a road back then than it is now. The Navajos were about the only ones that traveled it. My car conked out like this one today, and I started walking instead of waiting. As I walked, the fish came out. Swimming along in the starlight pretty as you please. Lots of them. All colors of the rainbow, small ones, big ones, thick ones, thin ones, swam right up to me, right through me, fish, as far as you could see, high up and low down to the ground. Hold on, boy, don't start looking at me like that. Listen, you're a college boy. You know what was here before we were, before we crawled out of the sea and changed enough to call ourselves men. Weren't we once just slimy things? Brothers to the things that swim? I guess, but millions and millions of years ago, this desert was a sea bottom. Maybe even at the birthplace of man. Who knows? I read that in some science books, and I got to thinking this. If the ghosts of people who lived can haunt houses, why can't the ghosts of creatures long dead haunt where they once lived, float about in a ghostly sea? Fish with a soul? Don't go small mind on me, boy. Look here. Some of the Indians I've talked to up north tell me about a thing they call the Manitou. That's a spirit. They believe everything has one. Rocks, trees, you name it. Even if the rock wears to dust or the tree gets cut to timber, the Manitou of it is still around. And why can't you see these fish all the time? Why can't we see ghosts all the time? Why do some of us never see him? Time's not right, that's why. It's a precious situation, and I figure it's like some fancy time lock, like the banks use. The lock clicks open at the bank, and there's the money. Here, it ticks open, and we get the fish of a world long gone. Well, it's something to think about, the young man managed. The old man grinned at him. I don't blame you for thinking what you're thinking. But this happened to me 20 years ago, and I've never forgotten it. I saw those fish for a good hour before they disappeared. A Navajo came along in an old pickup right after and I bummed a ride into town with him. I told him what I'd seen. He just looked at me and grunted. But I could tell he knew what I was talking about. He'd seen it too, and probably not for the first time. I've heard that Navajos don't eat fish. For some reason or another. And I bet it's the fish in the desert to keep them from it. Maybe they hold them sacred. And why not? It's like being in the presence of the creator. Like crawling around in the liquids with no cares in the world. I don't know. That, that sounds sort of fishy. The old man laughed. <laughs> it does. It does. So this Navajo drove me to town. Next day I got my car fixed. And went on. I've never taken that cut off again, till today, and I think that was more than accident. My subconscious was driving me. That night scared me, boy, and I don't mind admitting it, but it was wonderful, too, and I've, I've never been able to get it out of my mind. The young man didn't know what to say. The old man looked at him and smiled. I don't blame you, he said. Not even a little bit. Maybe I am crazy. They sat a while longer with the desert night, and the old man took his false teeth out and poured some of the warm water on them to clean them of coffee and cigarette residue. I hope we don't need that water, the young man said. You're right, stupid of me. We'll sleep a while, start walking before daylight. It's not far to the next town, ten miles at best. He put his teeth back in. We'll be just fine, the young man nodded. No fish came. They did not discuss it. They crawled inside the car, the young man in the front seat, the old man in the back. They used their spare clothes to bundle under, to pad out the cold fingers of the night. Near midnight, the old man came awake suddenly and lay with his hands behind his head and looked up and out the window opposite him, studied the crisp desert sky. And a fish swam by long and lean and speckled with all the colors of the world flicking its tail as if in goodbye. Then it was gone. The old man sat up. Outside, all about were fish, all sizes, colors and shapes. "'Hey, boy, wake up!' the younger man moaned. "'Wake up!' The young man, who'd been resting face down on his arms, rolled over. "'What's the matter? Time to go?' "'The fish. Not again. Look!' The young man sat up. His mouth fell open, his eyes bloated. Around and around the car, faster and faster in whirls of dark color, swam all manner of fish. Well, I'll be... How? I told you. I told you! The old man reached for the door handle, but before he could pull it, a fish swam lazily through the back window glass, swirled about the car once, twice, passed through the old man's chest, whipped up and went out through the roof. The old man cackled, jerked open the door. He bounced around beside the road, leapt up to swat his hands through the spectral fish. Like soap bubbles, he said. No, like smoke. The young man, his mouth still agape, opened his door and got out. Even high up he could see the fish. Strange fish, like nothing he'd ever seen pictures of or imagined. They flitted and skirted about like flashes of light. As he looked up, he saw, nearing the moon, a big dark cloud, the only cloud in the sky. That cloud tied him to reality suddenly, and he thanked the heavens for it. Normal things still happened. The whole world had not gone insane. After a moment, the old man quit hopping among the fish, and came out to lean on the car and hold his hand to his fluttering chest. "'Feel it, boy? Feel the presence of the sea? Doesn't it feel like the beating of your own mother's heart while you float inside the room?' And the younger man had to admit that he felt it, that inner rolling rhythm that is the tide of life and the pulsating heart of the sea. "'How?' the young man said. "'Why?' The time lock, boy, the locks clicked open and the fish are free. Free from a time before man was man. Before civilization started weighing us down. I know it's true. The truth's been in me all the time. It's in us all. It's like time travel, the young man said. From the past to the future, they've come all that way. Yes, yes, that's it. Why, if they can come to our world... Why can't we go to theirs? Release that spirit inside of us. Tune into their time. Now, wait a minute. My God, that's it. They're pure, boy, pure. Clean, free civilization's trappings. That must be it. They're pure and we're not. We're weighted down with technology. These clothes, that car. The old man started removing his clothes. Hey, the young man said. You'll freeze if you're pure, if you're completely pure, the old man mumbled. That's it. Yeah, that's the key. You've gone crazy. I won't look at the car, the old man yelled, running across the sand, trailing the last of his clothes behind him. He bounced about the desert like a jackrabbit. God, God, nothing is happening. Nothing, he moaned. This is my world. I'm of that world. I want to float free in the belly of the sea, away from can openers and cars. The young man called the old man's name. The old man did not seem to hear. I want to leave here, the old man yelled. Suddenly he was springing about again. The teeth, he yelled. It's the teeth. Dennis science, Foop He punched a hand into his mouth, plucked the teeth free, tossed them over his shoulder. Even as the teeth fell, the old man rose. He began to stroke, to swim up and up and up, moving like a pale pink seal among the fish. In the light of the moon, the young man could see the pooched jaws of the old man, holding the last of the future's air. Up went the old man, up, 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 swimming strong in the long lost waters of a time gone by. "'the young man began to strip off his own clothes. "'Maybe he could nab him, pull him down, "'put the clothes on him. "'Something. God, something. "'But what if he couldn't come back? "'And there were the fillings in his teeth, "'the metal rod in his back from a motorcycle accident. "'No. "'Unlike the old man, this was his world, "'and he was tied to it. "'There was nothing he could do. "'A great shadow weaved in front of the moon.' made a wriggling slat of darkness caused the young man to let go of his shirt buttons and look up. A black rocket of a shape moved through the invisible sea. A shark, the granddaddy of all sharks, the seed for all of man's fears in the deep. And it caught the old man in its mouth, began swimming upward toward the golden light of the moon, The old man dangled from the creature's mouth like a ragged rat from a house cat's jaws. Blood blossomed out of him, coiled darkly in the invisible sea. The young man trembled. Oh, God, he said once. Then along came that thick, dark cloud rolling across the face of the moon. Momentary darkness. And when the cloud passed, there was light once again. And an empty sky. No fish, no shark, and no old man. Just the night, the moon, and the stars.
1: Thanks again, Joe. You know, I always find Joe's characters to be so truly, terribly true. They always feel so connected to the world around them. Every part of their world is always something both familiar and foreign, as familiar as a rusted-out Plymouth and as foreign as a, as a ghost fish in a prehistoric night. But it all seems to hook together together and rings true in our heads and in our hearts. Oh, well, that's enough of me. Joe Richard Lansdale was born in Gladewater, Texas, a few heartbeats shy of Halloween 1951. He writes novels, stories, western, horror, science fiction, mystery, suspense. He's done comics and Batman, the animated series on television and on disc. He's had work adapted for the screen... To wit, Bubba Hotep, perhaps my favorite evil mummy film of all time, and absolutely my favorite Elvis is Alive film. So, may I suggest his monumentally epic tale of teen hormones, dinosaurs, and alternate reality, The Drive-In. It's a series of novels. Once you've read it, you will not forget it. Joe has won the British Fantasy Award the Grinsani-Cavour Prize for Literature, the American Horror Award, the Edgar Award, and eight, count them, eight Bram Stoker Awards. And in 2007, he received the World Horror Convention Grand Master Award. Joe is probably best known for his Hap and Leonard series of novels, Mucho Mojo, Savage Season, Bad Chili, a batch more, I think there are nine of them in total, They feature two unlikely friends, Hap Collins and Leonard Pine, who live in the fictional town of Laborde in East Texas. Hap and Leonard solve a variety of often very unpleasant crimes. I say they're unlikely friends. Hap is a white working-class laborer in his mid-40s who once protested against the war in Vietnam, and Leonard is a gay black Vietnam vet. Anyway, Joe now lives in Nacogdoches, Texas, and is the writer-in-residence at Stephen F. Austin State University. He also teaches at his own Shen Chuan Martial Arts School and is a member of both the United States and International Martial Arts Halls of Fame. And he is the father of actress and musician Casey Lansdale. Thanks again, Joe, for writing and letting us have Fish Night which was read for us tonight by Stephen Thomas Howe, whom I used to introduce as a career military guy and who is now Mr. Stephen Thomas Howe. Steve is now back in the world, as we used to say during another war, and has completed his service to the United States. And while I thank him for that, I am glad to know he is at home as safe as any of us can be. He says he's building a narration booth now, he's reacquainting himself with his wife and young sons, and we can look forward to hearing more from him. We like hearing him read, and who knows, we might even like hearing him read a tale or two of his own. He does that. He's working on several writing projects as we speak, and is currently trying to get into a master's writing program, so best wishes for it all, Stephen. And that will be that for tonight. A manly show, I think. Ghost fish, world domination, and thanks again to all. Thank you, Chicago Cubs, for getting me started— Thank you, Cher Eves, for all your work. Thank you, Tony C. Smith, for putting us up each week. And best wishes on the Hugo. Thank you, David, Joe, John, Steve. And thank you, all of you children of the night, all of you out there, for your donations to come. And, of course, for your weekly visits. So, I would have you be up and doing, bright, well, you know. Be off with you, and if going home takes you near the lake, watch out. No, you needn't watch out for the ghosts of lake bottom. There are ghosts abroad, but just the ghosts of so many, so many lost pennant races and missed opportunities that abide around Wrigley Field. See Wrigley Field. It's just a reminder to us all that life begins with joy and expectation and always ends in death and disappointment. Alas, so, have a pleasant walk home, slip into bed, picture the flying fish of seas long gone, and let them wriggle you to sleep and into tonight's pleasant dreams. Hmm? <laughs> This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.
4: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
1: dot dot Thank you for listening.